This is The Guardian. Today, Russia says its war in Ukraine has entered a new chapter. What that looks like from on the ground in Kharkiv, one of the country's most embattled cities. Ukraine has entered its second month. And on the ground, it's been clear for a while that if Russia's plan was to quickly overwhelm the Ukrainian army and take Ukraine's major cities, it's not working. In the East, Russia has destroyed a lot, but conquered little. The city of Mariupol, bombed relentlessly and surrounded, is still resisting. And in the past few days, Russia's made it official, saying their war in Ukraine has entered a new phase, focused on the east of the country. And on Tuesday, claiming they would withdraw some of their forces who have been bogged down around the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv. Just last week, Russia actually announced what they presented as a new strategy. I think a lot of people saw it as an attempt to spin a pretty humiliating military situation into something that they could claim looked more like a plan. The Russian Defense Ministry has made the important decision to decrease military activity several fold in the direction of Kyiv and Chernihiv to increase mutual trust and create the necessary conditions for further negotiations. If the Russian announcement can be believed, it signals a new stage of the war, but one that could be no less dangerous for Ukraine's military and its civilians. To understand why Russia's plan failed and what this new chapter might mean for Ukrainians, The Guardian's Emma Graham Harrison travelled east to Kharkiv, one of the country's most war-torn cities. It's somewhere where Russian troops particularly thought they would be welcome because of this, its Russian-speaking heritage, and where they were repulsed by very fierce fighting. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, is Russia changing strategies in Ukraine? Emma, to understand how this war might be changing, I think we should go back about five weeks to how it started. What were the Russians initially trying to do? It looked at the start of the war like the Russians were trying to storm into Kyiv, capture or kill the government and replace it with a puppet administration of their own loyal to Russia and essentially rule over most of Ukraine. I mean, there was some discussion of perhaps did they want to partition the country, but certainly... They clearly wanted to control Kyiv, uh, control other major cities, you know, Kharkiv, the second largest city in Ukraine, just near the Russian border. And they were expected to storm Odessa, which is, you know, a very historic, evocative city. It's a little bit smaller, but its name, its history means that it's incredibly sort of symbolically important. OK, so the strategy then looked like aiming for complete control of the country with a lightning advance on Kyiv and quick attacks on multiple other fronts. 
Why didn't that work? Well, I mean, that is a very interesting question. Why didn't it work? You know, I think perhaps the only people who didn't expect that to happen were the Ukrainians themselves. Because this war has been going on since 2014, there are over half a million Ukrainians before the the latest Russian invasion who had recent combat experience in the east of the country. So Putin essentially shaped practiced, trained this military that that he then sent his own army to fight. So you had this this army, that this military that I think had been underestimated by everybody, particularly by the Russians. And then on the other side, you had a Russian military that had been overestimated by everybody, including, again, apparently Putin himself and, and the senior command. So they have had multiple difficulties on the logistics front, on the communications front. The the Ukrainians have managed to keep control of their airspace. They've managed to harry and attack the Russians in their, they've they've captured an incredible number of tanks, I think equivalent, over 300, equivalent to perhaps half the tanks that the British army has in just over a month. They've killed a lot of Russian soldiers. So the casualties Russia has admitted to about 1,300 um, soldiers being killed. Ukraine says the actual figure is about 16,000. And NATO estimates that it's between 7,000 and 15,000 Russian soldiers killed in five weeks. Now, to put that in perspective, the official death toll for the decade-long Soviet war in Afghanistan was 13,000 soldiers killed. Those numbers are just remarkable. I mean, you've told us about the war that Vladimir Putin wanted. It didn't work out that way. So what's the war he's got? What's it actually look like on the ground now in Ukraine? Go, go, go. Move. So on the ground, you have these big cities that Putin hoped to seize, where he, you know, apparently hoped to be having victory parades within a couple of days. That have been turned into sort of hedgehogs. They're fortified layers and layers of defense from, you know, military checkpoints, soldiers who've mined the outskirts of, of, you know, areas where there's perhaps heavy fighting going on. To civilian defense teams in the city who are getting ready to do street by street resistance. You know, you drive through towns and you see, for instance, in Mykolaiv, a town in the south that's been really on the front line. Every single street corner we drove past had a big pile of tires and a big stack of Molotov cocktails. They said to us, if they get into this town, they were managing to hold them on the outskirts. We are ready to fight them block by block. We're going to burn the tires so they can't see where they're going. And we're going to throw Molotov cocktails at them. We're going to burn them in their tanks. And, you know, we have seen this level of resistance from Ukrainians again and again. These aren't just empty words. You know, these, these are very serious battle plans. Ukrainian forces this morning claimed to have destroyed a Russian supply ship and set fire to the port in the city of Berdyansk on the Sea of Azov. Emma, what you're describing sounds like an entirely new phase of this war, much slower, more grinding, a kind of war of attrition. What's Russia said about their strategy now? Last week, Russia announced what they said was was the end of the first phase of the war and the start of a second phase. They claimed success. I think a lot of people felt that it was, in fact, an attempt to rationalise what has been, in many ways, a, a pretty humiliating five weeks for their for their military. I mean, of course, we can't call it a defeat because they're still very, very much um, in Ukraine, still killing civilians, still fighting every day. But it's been a humiliating five weeks because it's really exposed the the weaknesses and the failings of a military that 
almost everybody thought was a lot stronger, a lot more professional, a lot more efficient than it has turned out to be. And of course, we saw on Tuesday the Russians make an even more significant announcement, which was that they're going to draw down their forces around the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv, and another city, Chernaev. Though it remains to be seen if either of those will actually happen. Emma, in trying to understand this new phase of the war, what it means for Ukrainians, you and our Kyiv correspondent, Isabel Koshu, went to the city of Kharkiv. Why there? We went to Kharkiv because it's somewhere that's really been on the the sharp end of this war, perhaps second only to Mariupol in terms of the intensity of the bombing of civilian areas. Um, The centre of the town has been almost completely destroyed. You've seen a level of damage, of death that, that, you know, hasn't reached places like Kyiv. And also because Kharkiv was probably central to Putin's idea of what he wanted to do in Ukraine. Russian troops were going to Ukraine to liberate Russian-speaking Ukrainians, particularly, who were being oppressed by a nationalist government. Kharkiv is, a, is traditionally been a Russian-speaking city. It's 30, 40 kilometers from the Russian border. It's traditionally been quite pro-Russian. It used to be a capital, in fact, of Ukraine. So at the beginning of the Soviet era, for over a decade, it was Ukraine's capital. So, you know, there's been some suggestion from the Ukrainians that one of the Russians' ideas perhaps was to segregate Ukraine into an eastern Ukraine that would be more or less controlled by Russia and then a western Ukraine that might be somewhat more independent. Tell me a little bit about Kharkiv. Why is taking that city so important to the Kremlin? I think if there was anywhere where this this idea that that Putin was peddling, that Ukrainians, particularly Russian-speaking Ukrainians, felt oppressed by a government which denied their Russianness, tried to sort of stamp out their the the Russian identifying bits of them themselves, their culture, tried to sort of that they were waiting to be liberated. If there was anywhere where that was going to happen, it should have been Kharkiv. And instead, the Russian troops who turned up there were met with absolutely ferocious resistance. Although they made it into parts of the city in the first days of the war, they've been pushed right back out. Speaks to how little Putin and the senior leadership in Moscow understood Ukraine, understood what Ukrainian identity is, and how much perhaps this country has changed from from 20 or 30 years ago. And over the weekend, the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, declared Kharkiv to be a hero city. What does the city mean to Ukrainians? One of the things that, that about Kharkiv that's very special is it's really a, a literary, a cultural hub. It's a place where you had this sort of famous renaissance that was crushed by Stalin. It came to be known as the executed renaissance. All these writers and intellectuals who gathered there in the 1930s. There was another sort of cultural renaissance in the 60s. It's, it's been a place that's really been associated with the intellectual idea of developing sort of with the idea of developing and exploring Ukrainian national identity which for a long time was a very dangerous thing to do you know under the Soviet Union and you could say Putin's policies are a continuation of that no to ja не бачив сенсу і якоїсь такої критичної необхідності мені звідси виїжджати 
I think it's really interesting while we were there, you know, we met quite a well-known poet. There's another even more famous writer who's, who's stayed and they've all chosen to stay there and they see their resistance, an intellectual resistance, keeping Kharkiv alive as a living city, which still holds on to that, that cultural heritage is a really important part of the fight. So there's the battle that's going on in the outskirts, the military battle, but there's also a battle that, that the people who've chosen to stay, and that includes poets, musicians, um, they're uploading, they're writing poetry, they're uploading poetry readings, and they very much identify themselves as part of a, a long tradition of Ukrainian resistance to oppression from Moscow, to efforts to, to stamp out Ukrainian identity, whether that was through purges in the 1930s or through missiles today. stunning that so many people have decided to stick around in a city that sounds like it's under just relentless shelling and bombings and attacks. What is life like for those civilians who have stayed behind? I mean, that is a, a very good description, Mike. It is it is stunning, to be honest. I mean, you, you, you go into the city and you wouldn't realise that so many people are still there because life has to a quite a large degree either moved underground or indoors because you have this relentless shelling it is dangerous to be out on the streets I mean the the Russian military attack on Kharkiv city was essentially launched by a missile strike on the provincial administration on the sort of city hall that building has been hollowed out there's not not much of it left except a facade Firemen are trying to clear the wreckage, make what's left of it safe. They've already pulled out 30 bodies, and, and that was from a missile strike at 8.30 in the morning, so not many people were there. You know, one metro station that, that we drove past on a reporting trip um, last Thursday, a couple of hours later, there were people queuing outside for aid, including one woman who'd been living in the metro for a month, and a rocket hit them. It was a group of civilians waiting for some food, Again, no military target. Six people were killed. There's relentless shelling in residential neighborhoods. So, you know, we, we went out with the rubbish men. So a bit like these poets who are trying to keep their intellectual spirit of their city alive. You, a lot of the people who stay are saying we have to stay to keep this a functioning city so you have these bin men it's amazing they're going out every morning in flak jackets they showed us several of their trucks have been hit by shrapnel they're going even to pretty dangerous frontline areas because they say you know if you don't collect the rubbish it becomes a health risk and also it's very bad for morale if you have you know piles of stinking rubbish piling up it feels like an abandoned city it, it will feel like a place that has been forgotten and we have a reputation they were incredibly proud of the fact Kharkiv is famous for being a clean city and you know there they are in the face of bombing which is taking hundreds of lives you know regular shelling and they're just going out every day on their rounds they said oh we've had to adjust it because of the curfew we can't go out so early so apart from people who are there doing that kind of work the city is deserted and despite this defiance i mean these russian tactics are obviously coming at a tremendous human cost you and isabel actually visited a hospital in the city what did you see there at the hospital 
again, the sort of human toll of this war on civilians, it was really quite heartbreaking. So because the shelling is so intense and because Kharkiv has a very strict curfew from 6 um, p.m. to 6 a.m., the doctors and nurses who are working there had not left the hospital for a month. They basically were there when the war started. The doctors, the nurses, all the staff are living in this building. They're, they're not only doing medical support for the, for the patients, they're cooking for them, they're cleaning for them. So we feed ourselves in the evening uh, and in the day we feed them twice. You know, we met this incredible um, paediatric neurosurgeon, Dr. Alexander um, Dukovsky who could remember all the... He said he treated over 50 children since the beginning of the war. He could remember all of them. He went in, in great detail into some of the the most sort of painful cases. And he said, you know, he, he's used to obviously dealing with families with children in very difficult, very sad situations. Um, and he said, oh, my mother brought me up to be a cynic. But the, this war had just brought him to tears the sort of the, the the scale of the suffering what i've what i've lived through now uh because obviously because of dan um it's not scary for me one of the patients who he talked about was it was a young girl a teenager called diana zubchenko who had been at home. She'd refused to leave her flat. We met, we met her and her mother. Um, they lived with her, her grandfather, who was a double amputee, so he couldn't really move. He couldn't go down to the, to the basement bomb shelter very easily. She didn't want him to be left on his own. So they stayed in their ninth floor flat and some kind of rocket actually hit the building next door, but it was such a, a, a large explosion that it blew out the windows and doors in their flat and and a door essentially was picked up by the force of the blast and slammed into her face and she got a really bad head injury and essentially uh, lost her eye. Dr Duhovsky said it, it was unclear whether he was even going to be able to save her life. She is now recovering. To see um, you know a teenager injured like that you know recovering from such a terrible life-changing injury it was just really heartbreaking. That incredible defiance and spirit that you describe does help to explain why Russia couldn't win this war in the first phase, why it has now become what it is five weeks in. What's the military situation like around Kharkiv? I mean, how have the Ukrainians managed to hold the Russians off for so long? We had a really interesting meeting, a really interesting interview with the governor of Kharkiv region where we talked quite a lot. He told us um, quite a lot about both the early days, how they managed to hold off the Russians and and what he thinks is happening now. Now Ukrainian forces are confident enough in in their positions around the city that they've actually been going on a counteroffensive and trying to take back some of the villages and force Russian forces, force the Russian troops a little bit further away from town. And, and people I've spoken to this week have said that, in fact, 
They've reported taking back a bit of territory and people in Kharkiv have said that the shelling this week has been a little bit less intense. The city's not going to be safe as long as this war is going on, because actually some of the artillery that's being hurled at them is coming from across the Russian border. I mean, the city is close enough that it can be targeted, not just with missiles, but with with regular artillery from inside Russia. But certainly the intensity of the fighting has has gone down a little bit. And instead, the Russians appear to be focusing their attention on trying to cut off the Ukrainian troops fighting on the front line near Donetsk and Luhansk in the Donbass. Emma, we've seen on Wednesday that Russia is continuing to shell the city of Chernaiv, one of the places where it claimed it was going to be drawing down its forces as part of this new phase. So there's already reasons to doubt these Russian claims that they're going to be refocusing their operations onto the Donbass region in the east. How do Ukrainians view Moscow's announcements? Are they buying what the Russians are saying? I think there's a lot of scepticism on the Ukrainian side that This could just be a ploy on Russia's part to buy time, to reorganize, regroup. Um, And that, you know, if you look at Putin's behavior so far, it's hard to see how someone who launched a war like this is easily going to accept defeat. And and obviously, you know, as long as this war is going on, that that threat does hang over other cities, particularly somewhere like Kharkiv, where there has been such a punitive campaign. Um, so, you know, I think everybody's very aware that there might be something of a respite. But while this war is still going on, they, they, they can't assume that that it that's going to be lasting. We're also seeing what looks like progress in peace negotiations between Ukraine and Russia with President Zelensky putting on the table ideas like Ukraine becoming a neutral country, uh, it's shelving the idea of joining NATO, and being open to compromise on the status of eastern regions like Donbass. Should we expect some kind of breakthrough anytime soon? If you look at the fact that Putin has launched this war, he's willing to sacrifice his own soldiers, he's willing to sacrifice the lives of Ukrainian civilians for a, a, a very abstract political goal of his. I find it hard to see how he's going to be willing to accept much of a compromise on that. Like he's had to scale it back, obviously, because of military defeats. But whether he would accept, you know, essentially going back to something like the the, the status quo before the war, but it would be a status quo in which Russia was poorer and its economy was sanctioned and it's unclear how a ceasefire might or might not lead to those things unravelling. And also that given Russia has a, a you know history of negotiating in somewhat bad faith in Syria, essentially using ceasefires and de-escalation periods and things like that to, to regroup and regather before going on the offensive again. Coming up, it might be the end of the beginning of the war in Ukraine. What does that mean for the civilians still living there? Hi. 
Hello, Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland here. I now have my own US politics podcast, which is, helpfully, called Politics Weekly America. So if you want to hear my interviews with politicians like Hillary Clinton or expert analysis from Guardian journalists and the latest news from Washington, D.C. and beyond, you should subscribe. To do that, just type Politics Weekly America into Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be there every Friday. Emma, in the first days of this war, it felt like Ukraine could fall at any moment. And we've seen more than 10 million people displaced from their homes, 4 million refugees actually having to leave Ukraine. And now you're saying this war has settled into something slower, more protracted, more painful for both sides. What does that new normal look like for people in Ukraine who have stayed behind? I mean, the reality of this war is actually quite different depending where you are in Ukraine. So we saw something of of the different realities of this war as as we drove back. So, you know, we, we left in the morning from a city that is practically under siege um, where normal life has essentially been suspended. People live underground. There's there's constant shelling. So you leave there, you drive to Dnipro, where actually, you know, shops, not just shops, but cafes are still open. Families are, you know, in the evening, we, we went to the riverfront and there were families walking there when the air raid sirens were over. Some people ignoring the air raid sirens to, to just go out. There's, there's a sort of sandy beach by the river. There were, there were people in an exercise park there doing exercises. Although the war is going on, although the fear is real, you, you need to try and get on with your life because you can't just sit at home being frightened all the time. On a day-to-day basis, their homes are not being hit. There isn't shelling in these cities. There aren't Russian troops on the outskirts. So they're sort of trying to feel their way towards a life where, you know, they can still earn a living. They can still try and educate their kids. Everything you've told me here gives the impression that both the Russians and the Ukrainians are digging in here for the long haul, that this war that initially appeared to be moving at lightning speed, you know, one that had us refreshing our phones for news updates every few hours, has now really slowed down, become something more entrenched and something that isn't going to wrap up anytime soon. I fear that's what it looks like. I mean, I think, of course, the Ukrainians would like it to end uh, very soon. And I think you can see it. They're going into the ceasefire talks with a very, you know, they're trying to have a very open mind. You've seen Zelensky already effectively make a concession on NATO. Um, but I was actually talking to a young Ukrainian who who um, I knew before the war this afternoon, and she was saying to me, you know, we spent the first three or four weeks just waiting to see what was happening and trying to sort of do immediate aid, immediate help, and thinking we'd be able to go back to our normal lives. And we're just starting to realise that everything has changed and that we are living in this new reality and that it's probably going to be for a very long time. And I think that sums up the feeling of a, of a lot of people here. And I think, you know, on Russia's side, we've seen a willingness to, to sort of throw lives, to throw money, to throw resources into this war, even when it's not going very well for them. This is really a war about about Putin's ideological view of the world. And a lot of people fear and that that's something that it's going to be very hard for Putin to compromise on. And therefore, yes, that, that, that this 
unfortunately maybe a conflict that goes on for quite some time. Thanks very much to Emma Graham Harrison and Isabel Koshu. You can read their really powerful reporting from Harkiv at theguardian.com. I'd also recommend you listen to Politics Weekly UK out every Friday, so tomorrow. John Harris is joined by The Guardian's Gabby Hinsliff and Peter Walker to talk about the re-emergence of Partygate, where it leaves Boris Johnson's leadership prospects, and why Keir Starmer doesn't seem to be able to capitalise on a government tarnished by scandal. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Lucy Hoff and exec'd by Elizabeth Casson. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Mythley Rao and Phil Maynard. Back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.